Dear Father, as we discussed yesterday, how important it is that we are settled into the truth about the kind of person you are, your character, your principle. And this seems so convincing as we read the story of Jesus, your life, your words, your actions, your death. Help us now as we look through the Old Testament today not to misunderstand and that we can read these stories, the most difficult ones, the hardest words, and that we are still absolutely convinced that you are exactly as you revealed yourself to be. We love you. Amen. Well, I was thinking here about the title for this morning and this afternoon. And by the way, uh, there is one handout for morning and afternoon. So don't worry, we're not going to uh, try to get through this whole thing in one hour this morning. But please remember to bring your handout back this afternoon. Otherwise, uh, we will run short. But what does the title imply? God of the Old Testament. Does it not suggest, well, there's a God of the Old Testament and there's a God of the New Testament, and they're somewhat different. Um, is that true? Well, this is what, it's what we want to explore this morning. Well, is it important? Um, could we not just say, well, God sometimes destroys with a fire. Sometimes the earth opens up and people are swallowed up. Sometimes he drowns them. Uh, that's just the way God is. Does it matter that we go back and we look at these stories and we try to harmonize and to realize that that really was Jesus in all of those stories? Well, let's say that um, a few weeks ago you happened to be in Redlands, California, and uh, you were walking by my house and uh, you looked over the wall and uh, you saw me in the backyard and um, you saw me shouting at my son. And you didn't see my son, but you saw me. And uh, angry words, maybe even some threats. And my face is red. I look angry. And, um, well, you kept on walking. Now, here you are. Uh, well, would you have invited me? Would you have maybe called Jamie and said, you know what, uh, Brad Cole is probably not the most appropriate person to come and speak uh, for these meetings because I just saw something that was, was quite troubling. Well... Um, would it make a difference if, let's say, you found out later that my son was up in the second story and, uh, you know, three, four-year-old son, and he had opened the window, maybe he'd seen a bird's nest or something. He was climbing out that window, concrete below, and I'm out in the garden, and uh, I see him innocently almost over the edge. Now, uh, what if my calls from the backyard, uh, James, go back in. Uh, what if he didn't listen, didn't respond to that soft voice, the kind words? Would you as a parent, uh, would you shout? Would you threaten? Would you raise your voice? Um, would it not be the only loving thing to do under that circumstance? All right, so uh, with that added information made my actions still completely compatible with what any loving parent would do. And uh, my opinion is, as we go through so many of these stories in the Old Testament, is that we should not just take it simply as it reads, and that's the way it is, let's not ask too many more questions, but as we gain more information, more insight into the setting and to why God did the things that he did, um, I think we come to the opinion he did the loving thing. He did the right thing. But we have to be convinced of that, and so that's why we're spending all day today uh, going through this. You know, we sometimes say God is love, but he's also just. Now, God is just, of course, supremely just, but uh, we should not imply with those words that God's justice is something that is separate from his love. God is love, yes, but he is also this other way. He's also just. God's justice is completely a part of his love. Okay, and we have to go through that um, again, which we will today. Well, I think the first question that needs to be asked is, who is the God of the Old Testament? Uh, was it Jesus? Was it the Father? 
Uh, who was that God that we saw doing all of those things? And you recall that uh, Jesus on the Sermon of the Mount, as he's giving this uh, wonderful address, uh, it's almost like the people um, were thinking, you know, this is not the God that we have come to know. And so he has to just shift midway through. I just, I, I wish we were here or we were there and could have heard what was going on, but that there was grumbling and that he had to interject change direction and in Matthew 5:17, um, he said now hold on don't suppose that I came to do away with the law and the prophets I did not come to do away with them but to give them their full meaning I came to explain them I came to fulfill all right they thought that what he was saying was heresy incompatible with what we have learned about God in the Old Testament and he's saying no no, no not true you have just misinterpreted the Old Testament you have misinterpreted the character of God based on your understanding of the Old Testament. Now, I've come to explain it to you. All right, so anyway, who was that God? Well, we read in 1 Corinthians 10, 3 and 4, Paul says, All ate the same spiritual bread and drank the same spiritual drink. They drank from the spiritual rock that went with them, and that rock was Christ himself. All right, that was Jesus in the Old Testament. And we could make this point much stronger, but there are so many other things I'd like to say today, so I'll just uh, maybe add one additional thing. In Exodus 3, remember, God came um, in the burning bush to Moses and said, I am the God of your ancestors. God said, I am who I am. You must tell them the one who is called I am has sent me to you. Tell the Israelites that I, the Lord, the God of their ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, have sent you to them. Now, so he is the I am. And uh, what is so remarkable is Jesus so many times refers to himself as the I am. He said, and you will die in your sins if you do not believe that I am who I am. And again, when you lift up the Son of Man, you will know that I am who I am. Okay, making the claim, that was me at the burning bush. I am telling you the truth, Jesus replied, before Abraham was born, I am. You remember, what was the response of the Pharisees at this point? They picked up stones to kill him. I mean, this was uh, blasphemy. You know, this man is claiming to be God. And I didn't realize this until very recently, but when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the crowd was coming toward him with clubs. Um, and uh, we read the account here in John 18:5. Jesus knew everything that was going to happen to him. So he went to meet them and asked, who are you looking for? They answered him, Jesus from Nazareth. And Jesus told them, I am. Now the he is supplied. Um, he literally just said, I am. And you remember what happened when he said, I am. They all collapsed to the floor, right? And then got back up and I must have wondered what happened. But anyway, this I am, Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. So as we read these stories, uh, we have to keep remembering, okay, that's Jesus, that was Jesus. Of course, when we read the story of Jesus, we have to remember Jesus is God. Jesus is God all the way through. So when Jesus said, and we read this yesterday, you have your heads in your Bibles constantly because you think you'll find eternal life there. But you miss the forest for the trees. These scriptures are all about me. Okay, the Bible from beginning to end is the story of Jesus, who is God. All right, so the words here, the Messianic prophecy in Isaiah 9, a child is born to us, a son is given to us, and he will be our ruler. He will be called, and look at the titles, Wonderful Counselor. Who's the Counselor? Holy Spirit. Mighty God, Eternal Father, okay, not much uh, mistaking who that is referring to, the Father. Prince of Peace, who's the Prince of Peace? The Son, all right, so I think the meaning here is Jesus came as a perfect reflection, a perfect representation of the Trinity. God, Father, Son, the same in character. And so again, the Bible is the book that unfolds the character of God, and we see it most clearly in the life of Jesus. But even if someone were to take the position, you know, that Old Testament God, that was the Father, uh, would it make any difference? Jesus' words, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. 
And I love this quote here of um, Ellen White uh, that you have in your handout. Had God the Father come to our world and dwelt among us, humbling himself, veiling his glory, that humanity might look upon him, the history that we have of the life of Christ would not have been changed. Think of that. It's amazing. In every act of Jesus, in every lesson of his instruction, we are to see and hear and recognize God in sight, in hearing, in effect. I mean, by all of our senses, it is the voice and movements of the Father. Okay, that is good news. Now, so with that in mind, um, I have kind of categorized Old Testament stories and, and lumped them together in different ways, and you'll see as we go through this today. But, but first, I just have to make the point that the Old Testament sometimes gets a bad rap. Um, well, first of all, are all of the harsh and difficult stories in the Old Testament? Ananias and Sapphira, um, isn't some of the wording in Revelation um, somewhat challenging? Jesus' story of the rich man and Lazarus, I mean, there are some similar kinds of uh, threads uh, through the New Testament. And, uh, but by the same account, all, are all of the loving stories and tender stories in the New Testament? No, I mean, the Lord is my shepherd. The story of the vineyard owner is so tender. Um, you know, is anything more moving in the Bible? Well, okay, the cross, but to the story of Hosea, you know, God says, my people, they're like a prostitute that has left me, but I still love them. I'm going to go back and win them back. Um, what about the Hitler of the Old Testament, Manasseh? God was able to win him back. Um, and who are God's friends in the Bible? Old Testament, Abraham, Moses, um, David, a man after God's own heart. So um, really, you know, we, we have to, there are wonderful things in the Old Testament. But let's go through, and the, the first point that I have here is that God in the Old Testament gets the credit, I hate to say it that way, but gets the credit often for many things that he didn't actually do. Okay, let's give some specific examples. Second Samuel 24, verse 1. The Lord was angry at Israel again, and he made David think it would be a good idea to count the people in Israel and Judah. Now, many of your versions um, say God tempted David to give the census. Um, now, does God tempt to evil? Does God um, make us think it would be a good idea to do something that would be wrong? You know, James says God does not tempt to evil. So what do we do here with this um, expression that's given in 2 Samuel 24, verse 1? Well, the interesting thing is, remember, we have two accounts of all of this, in Samuel and in Chronicles. Samuel, the very early book, uh, Chronicles written much later. And here's the description, exact same story in 1 Chronicles 21.1. Satan wanted to bring trouble on the people of Israel, so he made David decide to take a census. It's the exact same account on one occasion. It's God that prodded David to do it. On the other account, it was Satan. Now, in reality, um, can Satan force us to do something evil? No. no, I mean, David followed Satan's suggestion and um, he gave the census. But so anyway, but how here it is worded. Um, so uh, kind of an interesting concept here is when we compare the references to Satan in the Old Testament and New Testament, um, we mentioned several references in the Old Testament, but really Satan is relatively absent in the Old Testament compared to the New Testament. New Testament all the way through. Jesus referring to Satan. You know, he's in the wilderness of temptation. Paul, uh, Revelation. It's, uh, Satan is so often referred to in the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, um, Satan is somewhat um, veiled. And it almost seems that, um, you know, these people were so prone to worship other gods that in a sense, God seemed to veil Satan. Even, even those verses we read in Ezekiel and Isaiah, um, it is the king of Tyre, the king of Babylon. Well, then we know it's actually referring to Satan. Uh, but until Satan could be fully exposed and defeated, um, it seems almost that God is willing to you know, take, I mean, this, this verse here in 2 Samuel 24, uh, God did not actually do that, but yet it is worded that way. Let's give a few more examples here. Look at David's words in 1 Samuel 26. By the living Lord, David continued, I know that the Lord himself will kill Saul either when his time comes to die a natural death or when he dies in battle. Okay, God is going to kill Saul in one of two ways. 
when Saul dies a natural death or when he dies in battle. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? Now, this is their way of describing things. And, of course, how did Saul die? Suicide, right? He fell on his sword. Uh, but yet you read on this account. He falls on his sword. He commits suicide. And the story concludes in First Chronicles 10, so the Lord killed him. Right? Now, um, in, in a sense, God allowed Saul to kill himself. And so by some way of, of thinking, God could have protected Saul. He could have uh, caused him to win that battle. And so by some way of thought, um, you know, this, this was at the hands of God. This is perhaps a way of thinking of things at this time. Okay, another example here in Ezekiel 24. And this afternoon, uh, a big subject of our, um, our time together will be about God's anger. We'll come back to this verse. But these are hard words in Ezekiel 24, and it refers to the coming destruction of Jerusalem. Okay, God is speaking, and he says, The city of murderers is doomed. I myself will pile up the firewood, bring more wood, fan the flames, cook the meat, boil away the broth, burn up the bones, now set the empty bronze pot on the coals and let it get red hot. Then the pot will be ritually pure again after the corrosion is burned off, although all that corrosion will not disappear in the flames. Jerusalem, your immoral actions have defiled you. Although I tried to purify you, you remain defiled. You will not be pure again until you have felt the full force of my anger. I, the Lord, have spoken. The time has come for me to act. I will not ignore your sins or show pity or be merciful. You will be punished for what you have done. The sovereign Lord has spoken. All right, so God will kindle the fire. He will pile up the firewood. He will punish. Now, this is the warning about what would happen to Jerusalem. Uh, what actually happened to Jerusalem? Who kindled the fire? Who destroyed Jerusalem? And we read on the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar, his general, burned down the city of Jerusalem. Did God actually literally kindle the fire? And God himself, now he allowed that to happen. But again, God here, uh, in very hard words, I think he wants his people to listen. And even if there is some fear, he's willing to use that kind of a language to get his people to turn around. But he takes the credit for this, even though in the end it was God because his people wouldn't listen and what does God do? I mean, does, if, we're, if we will not listen and we again and again refuse God, does God then become the puppet master and control the strings? No, he will let us go our own way. And then we suffer horrible consequences as, as uh, we read on in the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, this point, I think, is made so well when we go back to the children of Israel wandering in the desert. Numbers 21. Okay, read the words here. The Israelites left Mount Hor by the road that leads to the Gulf of Aqaba in order to go around to the territory of Edom. But on the way, the people lost their patience and spoke against God and Moses. They complained, why did you bring us out of Egypt to, to die in this desert where there is no food or water? We can't stand any more of this miserable food. Okay, what happened? Then the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and many Israelites were bitten and died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Now pray to the Lord to take these snakes away. So Moses prayed for the people. Okay, so we take the Bible just as it reads, and very clear, God sent poisonous snakes, and many people died because of those poisonous snakes. Now, Based on what I've said earlier about Saul and David and these other examples, um, would, would it be wrong for us to think and possibly imagine another possibility beyond God himself sending the poisonous snakes? And look at how Ellen White interprets this story in Patriarchs and Prophets. Every day of their travels, they had been kept by a miracle of divine mercy. And all the way of God's leading, they had found water to refresh the thirsty, bread from heaven to satisfy their hunger, and peace and safety under the shadowy cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. Angels had ministered to them as they climbed the rocky heights or threaded the rugged paths of the wilderness. Notwithstanding the hardships they had endured, there was not a feeble one in all their ranks. Their feet had not swollen in their long journeys, neither had their clothes grown old. This really was a miracle. 
God had subdued before them the feasts, the fierce beasts of prey and the venomous reptiles of the forest and the desert. If with all these tokens of his love, the people still continued to complain, the Lord would withdraw his protection until they should be led to appreciate his merciful care and return to him with repentance and humiliation. Because they had been shielded by divine power, they had not realized the countless dangers by which they were continually surrounded. In their ingratitude and unbelief, they had anticipated death. And now the Lord permitted death to come upon them. The poisonous serpents that infested the wilderness were called fiery serpents on account of their terrible effects produced by their sting. It caused violent inflammation and speedy death. Okay, what happened? As the protecting hand of God was removed from Israel, great numbers of the people were attacked by this venomous, these venomous creatures. Okay, do you like the way Ellen White interprets this story? God was protecting his people. Okay, he loved his people. And despite the fact that they had rebelled and rebelled and rebelled, he protected them still. But again, when we tell God again and again, take a hike, get lost, we're not interested. He does not override our freedom. And when that happens and we leave God's protective care, then there are natural consequences. And so again, I think there are so many examples of this where God gets the credit for things that he instead allows to happen. And that all has to do with our freedom. Well, the second point here in looking at the Old Testament is what I call God the iconoclast. What is an iconoclast? Well, it's one who destroys religious images or one who attacks settled beliefs or institutions. All right? And God is the ultimate iconoclast. Okay, look at his dilemma. Remember, we described how this war began yesterday. Satan had so perverted the truth that people had come to see the true God as clothed with satanic characteristics. God has to get the truth out. All right? And he's not just waiting until Jesus would come. He is working, working, working all the way through the Old Testament. And so, um, as we said yesterday, God cannot... I mean, if, if it were just about God making a statement or a claim, uh, we could have the Bible one page. God is love. And a few other sentences, and that's it. Okay, It's just a claim. But... God has to give us evidence, right? So that we really believe, we're really settled into the way he is. And so uh, God, as we'll go through several examples here, notice that when God uses these methods, he only uses his friends. Okay, and I'll explain why in just a little bit. But Abraham, who is referred to as a friend of God, all right, listen to what God uh, put Abraham through. God said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will show you. Now, if God came to you, woke you up in the middle of the night, and asked you to, um, to kill your son, uh, would you do it? Most of you shake your head no. Um, did Abraham... Well, just read on. Early the next morning, well, he got right up. Abraham cut some wood for the sacrifice, loaded his donkey, and took Isaac and two servants with him. Now, why was he so ready, you know, and um, followed through right away? Here's a comment in the back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it is helpful that we take the, the great controversy perspective, which is that there is an onlooking universe. We are a spectacle. Okay, and then the onlooking universe had watched Abraham stumble many times. And Satan is probably there saying, well, look, you know, this is your best representative. And here he is claiming that Sarah is his sister and, and all these other things. So I think that's part of the equation. But I think uh, the other aspect is, um, was this done during this time, child sacrifice? Was it a common thing, a not so common thing? I mean, wasn't this seen to be, boy, if you're really devoted to God and you sacrifice your son, I mean, that is really an act of, uh, of extreme devotion. And aren't the gods so often in the Old Testament pleased with child sacrifice? They demand child sacrifice. And uh, look at the, the words here in Second Kings 3. 
about the king of Moab. When the king of Moab realized that he was losing the battle, okay, they're fighting the Israelites, the Israelites are helping them win, the God is helping them win this battle. Here's what the king of Moab did. He took 700 swordsmen with him and tried to force his way through the enemy lines and escape to the king of Syria, but he failed. So he took his oldest son, who was to succeed him as king, and offered him on the city wall as a sacrifice to the god of Moab. The Israelites were terrified, so they drew back from the city and returned to their own country. Now, why were they terrified? They're winning this battle. But in, in their mindset at this time, I mean, God is still trying to lead them to believe, you know what, there is only one God. There is only one true God. There is no God of Moab and all of these other so-called gods. But in, in their way of thinking at this time, there's a God of Israel, that's our God. There's a God of Moab, that's his territory over there. And so when this king of Moab sacrifices his son, well, that's terrifying. Moab must be very pleased. Let's get out of here. All right, this extreme act of devotion was terrifying to them. And so they fled. And of course, Solomon, you know, we read about uh, all the child sacrifice uh, as he turned to other gods. And these words in Jeremiah 32 are very interesting, God's words. They have built altars to Baal and Hinnom Valley to sacrifice their sons and daughters to the god Moloch. I did not command them to do this, and it did not even enter my mind that they would do such a thing and make the people of Judah sin. Interesting way to express it. Did not even enter my mind that they would do such a thing. And then the, the familiar words in Micah, and we like to, to read the end of uh, these verses in uh, chapter 6, but notice how it starts out. What shall I bring to the Lord, the God of heaven, when I come to worship him? Shall I bring my best calves to burn his offerings to him? Will the Lord be pleased if I bring him thousands of sheep or endless streams of olive oil? Shall I offer him my firstborn child to pay for my sins? No. The Lord has told us what is good. What he requires of us is this, to do what is just, to show constant love, and to live in humble fellowship with our God. All right? This is what God wants. He does not need to be appeased. Now, if you were living in the time of Abraham, uh, when child sacrifice, and this was, just, this was part of um, the way things were done, and you became a believer in the God of Abraham, then could you not at least say, well, you know what? The God of Abraham, he does not demand that we kill our firstborn. He does not need to be appeased. And what's the other message in the story, of course? God will provide. He will provide the sacrifice. Uh, but again, the, the, the claim or the statement made in Micah, uh, yes, God does not need the death of a firstborn. But the story, doesn't it make it so powerful? If you're worshiping the God of Abraham and you are tempted... Uh, as an act of devotion to kill your firstborn son, would you not remember that story and say, no, 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 remember that story of Abraham. God does not demand the sacrifice of our children to please him. He's not a God of appeasement. And so when Solomon later on uh, turned to other gods and uh, worshipped the God of Moloch, a cruel God who uh, demanded that the children be placed in his hot, fiery hands, I mean, just a horrible thing, you know, his picture of God now changed to a God who did demand sacrifice, child sacrifice and appeasement. So again, the story, the iconoclastic method here of God is he builds up this, this false picture and then shatters it in the story of Abraham. Now let's uh, use another example here, Moses. Remember that uh, God has come to Mount Sinai, Moses goes up to get the Ten Commandments and uh, the people during this time uh, turned and are worshiping a golden calf. And so in this context, the Lord said to Moses, hurry and go back down because your people whom you let out of Egypt have sinned and rejected me. They've already left the way that I commanded them to follow. They've made a bull calf out of melted gold and have worshiped it and offered sacrifices to it. They are saying that this is their God who led them out of Egypt. I know how stubborn these people are. Now, don't try to stop me. I am angry with them and I'm going to destroy them. Then I will make you and your descendants into a great nation. Now, would you, um, you know, who are we to talk back to God? 
If God, had, you know, you're leading these people out and they're grumbling and they're complaining. And, um, you know, they were a headache to Moses much of, much of the time, weren't they, with all of their complaining. And God said, you know what, I'm going to wipe these people out. And Moses, I will make of you and of your descendants a great nation. Um, well, we have faulted Moses for saying, okay, you know, good, a nation of my children. And these people really have been a bother. You're right, God. Um, but notice the emphasis here. Go, let's go back and I underlined the words here. The Lord said to Moses, hurry and go back down because your people whom you led out of Egypt. Now, were they Moses' people? Did Moses lead them out of Egypt? No, they're God's people. God led them out of Egypt. They've sinned and rejected me. Now, don't try to stop me. I'm angry with them. I'm going to destroy them. Then I will make you and your descendants into a great nation. Okay, and Moses, uh, he, he hears this and what, and what God is saying. And so, uh, you know, I mean, it's almost, can we imagine in the setting that God, the creator, needs a creature to calm him down and to talk him down from his anger. That's sometimes the way the story is explained. But uh, uh, no, look, I mean, can we imagine that God, look just a few, 40 days earlier, the tender words he had said about these people, the whole earth is mine, but you will be my chosen people, a people dedicated to me alone, and you will serve me as priests. Two million people wandering through the desert. Is God just on the verge of wiping them all out? Uh, the prophecy about the coming Messiah through the descendants of Judah. Uh, all of this would have been negated. Well, look at how Moses responded. But Moses pleaded with the Lord, his God, and said, Lord, Lord, why should you be so angry with your people who you rescued from Egypt with great might and power? God, these are not my people. These are your people. Why should the Egyptians be able to say that you led your people out of Egypt? planning to kill them in the mountains and destroying them completely. Notice Moses here, he's concerned about God's reputation. God, you would really look bad if you did that. Stop being angry, change your mind, and do not bring this disaster on your people. I mean, imagine turning to God and saying that. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember the solemn promise you made to them to give them as many descendants as there are stars in the sky and to give their descendants all that land you promised would be their possession forever. So the Lord changed his mind. Now, did he really? Uh, and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. And so Moses says, in essence, you know what, God, these are your people, not my people. And by the way, God, as I know you, uh, you could not do this. And look at the words here as, as Moses goes on. And he says, God, please forgive their sins. But if you won't, then remove my name from the book in which you have written the names of your people. I mean, how passionately, how much does Moses love these people? I mean, uh, and so again, with the onlooking universe, how can God reveal what is in the heart of his friend Moses? And so he comes to Moses, his friend, in this way. Moses responds. I mean, how many times in the Bible do we see this ideal of love? We see it here with Moses. We see Stephen as he's being stoned, forgiving those people who are stoning him. We see Jesus forgiving those enemies who killed him on the cross. Um, Paul and Romans said, I would be willing to be cut off from God if the Jews would come into this message. So this is the ideal of love. And so God, who knows the heart of Moses, um, uses this opportunity with his friend to reveal before the onlooking universe what is in the heart of Moses. And I just imagine God at this point turns to the angels and say, did you all see that? Did you see what Moses did? Now, I wish all of you knew me as well as Moses knows me. I mean, I don't, I'm putting that into God's words. But, but I think the point here is this is the ideal. And God uses his friend to reveal the ideal of love. And so Moses is referred to again and again as a friend of God, one who spoke face to face with God as with a friend. Now, third example of this is Job. And uh, we could spend a whole week on Job. It is one of my favorite books, but I think this is another good uh, example of it. And remember how this story starts out. Who initiated all of this, Satan or God? Well, uh, 
we look at the words here, Job 1. You know, they're all meeting together. God initiates it. Did you notice my servant Job? Now, would you like to be Job in this setting? You know, you're a good person. You're doing what is right. God is having a conversation with Satan and says, hey, look at that guy down there or that uh, lady down there. I mean, uh, wouldn't you like, no, God, just stay quiet about it, you know. But uh, God brings it up and says, there is no one on earth as faithful and good as he is. He worships me and is careful not to do anything evil. Okay, and as the King James Version puts it, Job was perfect and upright. Now, what is this, the claim made by Satan? Um, you know what, God, Job only serves you for selfish reasons. All right, again, we get back to this whole principle of selfishness and unselfishness. And so you recall the story that um, Job loses um, his wealth, his family, and again, uh, he doesn't let God down, and Satan says, well, he's still serving you for selfish reasons. Take his health away, and then he'll curse you. So God says, okay, and he's covered with boils, and again, he does not curse God. And so uh, it's important here, I think, as we try to understand Job, that we look at the beginning of the book and the end of the book. The beginning of the book, God says Job is a good man, a good man perfect and upright. We read the end of the book. Job 42.7, God says to the friends, you did not speak the truth about me the way my servant Job did. So we need to incorporate his dialogue with the friends in the light of the beginning and the end of the book, where Job did what was right. He said what was right. And what's the subject of the conversation between Job and the friends? The truth about me, the truth about God. So we need to be reading this to see, okay, Job is telling the truth about God, the friends are not. And so these friends, you know, they come and they, I mean, very pious, they lay down by Job for seven days, don't say a word, um, really seeming quite devoted here. And then Eliphaz, the first one, and I have to describe before we get into his message, how it came to him. Listen to how he describes it. Once a message came quietly, so quietly I could hardly hear it. Like a nightmare, it disturbed my sleep. I trembled and shuddered. My whole body shook with fear. A light breeze touched my face and my skin crawled with fright. I could see something standing there. I stared but couldn't tell what it was. Then I heard a voice out of the silence. Now, this is a little scary, isn't it? This message that he received. Uh, how do you think he got this message? Uh, don't you think it's possible that here's Satan? Is he not invested very much in this dialogue between Job and his friends. Okay, Satan's reputation is really on the line here as he's trying to accuse God in front of all of the angels. Would he not have had a hand in the message that was given by these three friends? Well, I like how Job, after the story, Job responds, but you, you terrify me with dreams. You send visions and nightmares. It really sounds like a nightmare the way it came to this friend. Well, anyway, here is the message. What do you think? of the message that came from Eliphaz. Can anyone be righteous in the sight of God or be pure before his creator? God does not trust his heavenly servants. He finds faults even with his angels. The angels are watching this. Do you think he will trust a creature of clay, a thing of dust that can be crushed like a moth? Okay, and Eliphaz repeats later on. Can human beings really be pure? Can anyone be right with God? Why, God does not trust even his angels. Even they are not pure in his sight. And we drink evil as if it were water. Yes, we are corrupt. We are worthless. Now imagine you've gone through what Job has gone through. Through no fault of your own, God himself has said, this is a perfect and an upright man. All right, and so you're lying in a hospital bed or maybe even on the streets somewhere. And here comes a message from a friend which is, we are worthless in God's sight. Now, very encouraging words, right? Um, but what do you think about that? Um, is this true? Are we worthless in God's sight? And I think it doesn't take much of the Bible to refute that charge. And uh, so I think I put this here in your handout. I mean, Moses, God spoke face to face, calls him a friend. That does not sound like a worthless individual. Abraham was called God's friend. David, a man after his own heart. 
And I love how the angel comes to Daniel. Uh, Daniel, when you began to plead with God, he answered you, he loves you. The angel said to me, Daniel, God loves you. Three times. And he said, God loves you. So don't let anything worry or frighten you. Okay? He loves you, but remember, Daniel, humans are worthless. No, God loves us. We're of infinite value, right? Okay, Jesus says, I do not call you servants any longer. Instead, I call you friends. So what is the value of a human soul to God? I mean, it's infinite value. So this is really a very harmful message that comes from Eliphaz. Designed, calculated to separate Job and his connection, his trust from God. Well, this theme was repeated. Bildad chimes in in Job 25. Then what about a human being, that worm, that insect? What is a human life worth in God's eyes? What is a human life worth in God's eyes? Could we even possibly overestimate uh, the value of a human life in God's eyes? And Job responds to this, Who inspired you to speak like this? Who indeed inspired these friends to speak like this? And as you recall, the book of Job, the friends spend much of their time trying to convince Job that he must have sinned. But again, beginning of the book, God himself. No, no, no. This did not happen because Job needed to be corrected because Job had sinned. Eliphaz says, think back now. Name a single case where someone righteous met with disaster. Have you ever met a good person that has met with disaster? Yes, that happens all the time, doesn't it? Um, Job 5.17, again, words of Eliphaz. Happy is the person whom God corrects. Do not resent it when he rebukes you. Now, that's true, isn't it? But in this context, is God correcting Job? Is he rebuking Job? No, he's a perfect and upright man. This is why uh, whenever a, a verse from Job is listed as a key text in the bulletin or something like that, uh, I have to be careful. Who's saying um, those words? But anyway, um, Job denies again and again that he's done anything wrong. You've gone far enough. Stop being unjust. Don't condemn me. I'm in the right. The friends come back. Put your heart right, Job. Reach out to God. Put away evil and wrong from your home. Then face the world again, firm and courageous. Then all your troubles will fade from your memory like floods that are past and remembered no more. Okay, but it gets worse. But now, Job, you are being punished as you deserve. And even again, God is punishing you less than you deserve, Job. Wow, this would be hard to take, wouldn't it? Okay, and then the end of the book, any sensible person will surely agree and the wise who hear me will say that Job is speaking from ignorance and that nothing he says makes sense. Okay, again, God's words in the end. You have said of me what is right, Job. Think through everything that Job says. You will see that he talks like an evil man to his sins. He adds rebellion in front of us all. He mocks God. Now, it is true that Job has some very pointed words. Uh, for God. And I posted uh, some of these here in Job 23, where Job says, I still rebel and complain against God. I cannot keep from groaning. How I wish I knew where to find him and knew how to go where he is. I would state my case before him and present all the arguments in my favor. I want to know what he would say and how he would answer me. Would God use all his strength against me? No, he would listen as I spoke. I am honest. I could reason with God. He would declare me innocent once and for all. Now, do you like Job's picture of a God you can reason with? If you were in the greatest despair, I mean, your child had been killed or something, is God offended if in your great anguish you say, God, how did you let this happen? I mean, I, I think that... Uh, we have so many examples here in the Bible of God's friends who in the deepest anguish, they say what is on their mind. And there is no rebuke back from heaven. Don't talk that way. You've offended me by those hard words. Remember when God came to Abraham before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham said, shouldn't the judge of all the earth do what is right? Would you say that to God? Well, Abraham was God's friend and he did. Uh, if you have your Bibles, actually, I should have put this in there, but go to Exodus 5 as an example of another friend, Moses, and how he spoke to God. 
under a very, very difficult circumstance. Exodus 5.22. Okay, Moses and Aaron are before the king of Egypt and things are just not going well. And in Exodus 5.22, Then Moses turned to the Lord again and said, Lord, why do you mistreat your people? Why did you send me here? Ever since I went to the king to speak for you, he has treated them cruelly, and you have done nothing to help them. All right, now we might expect the next verse, God comes back to Moses. Don't talk to me that way, Moses. That's uh, too strong. But again, under... The circumstances. I mean, would would God? Uh, it would be somewhat like, um, you know, a patient comes to see a psychiatrist, let's say, and there are, there are some deep issues and things that are going on, uh, and the patient comes and and says, um, everything's fine. I don't have any. I'm happy and everything is good. Is anything productive going to happen in that exchange if the patient is not open and honest with? What is going on? No. So uh, I think uh, when when friends, how do friends talk with each other? They're completely open and honest, aren't they? So under this setting, Moses speaks what is on his mind, and I don't see God being offended by this, or by uh, or that God was offended by these words of Job under the circumstance. And what about the Psalms? You just read the Psalms all the way through. How many of them are complaining? Uh, God, how could you let this happen? Uh, words. Okay, but we can come to God honestly with our concerns. So I think we have two views uh, presented here. Um, the, the friends come with the view, you can't talk with God like that. Stand back, Job. He's going to zap you for, for talking that way. Uh, Job says, no, I can come and speak honestly with God. And Job says, if only my life could once again be as it was when God watched over me. God was always with me then and gave me light as I walked through the darkness. Those were the days when I was prosperous in the friendship of God, protected my home. Okay, friends, God's friends in the Old Testament, and Job was one of them. Now contrast this view with the picture of God described by Elihu. I quoted this verse yesterday morning. I won't ask to speak with God. Why should I give him a chance to destroy me? God's power is so great that we cannot come near him. Okay, which picture of God do we prefer? Job's picture. We can talk with God. I could be honest with God. He would listen to me. He would not use his power to destroy me. Or the picture of Elihu. Uh, oh, stand back, Job. Don't say that to God. All right, so who's telling the truth? Well, Job here, and probably the most Famous verse quoted from this, uh, Job 13, verse 15. Job says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. What a demonstration. I think Job is really an example to us um, in that under any circumstance, the worst possible circumstance, a time of trouble kind of circumstance, that we could say, despite all physical outward appearance, I cannot be moved from this picture of the kind of person God is. And Job could not be moved from his position about God. Eliphaz says, is there anyone, even the wisest, who could ever be of use to God? Now, is not Job being of use to God in this story? As the angels, and, and we coming back and we're reading this. Does your doing right benefit God, or does your being good help him at all? Do you help God by being so righteous? There is nothing God needs from you. Why do we have this whole book in the Bible? God is very much using this story to say something about himself. And Job says, How I wish that someone would remember my words and record them in a book. Ah, oh, isn't it wonderful? They are recorded in a book. Or with a chisel, carve my words in stone and write them so that they would last forever. But I know there is someone in heaven who will come at last to my defense even after my skin is eaten by disease, while still in this body, I will see God. I will see him with my own eyes, and he will not be a stranger. And again, thank goodness these words are preserved. So Job concludes, Will no one listen to what I am saying? I swear that every word is true. 
Let Almighty God answer me. If the charges my opponent brings against me were written down so that I could see them, I would wear them proudly on my shoulder and place them on my head like a crown. I would tell God everything I have done and hold my head high in his presence. Now, if everything I have just said about the book of Job is true, uh, how would we just intuitively expect God to come to Job? Gently, perhaps? Job, thank you. You said of me what is right. Um, but how does God come to Job? Well, look, then out of a storm, the Lord spoke to Job. Who are you to question my wisdom with your ignorant, empty words? Now stand up straight and answer the questions I ask you. Were you there when I made the world? If you know so much, tell me about it. Who decided how large it would be? Who stretched the measuring line over it? Do you know all the answers? What holds up the pillars that support the earth? Who laid the cornerstone of the world? And God continues with sarcasm. Do you know where light comes from or what the source of darkness is? Can you show them how far to go or send them back again? I'm sure you can, Job, because you're so old and were there when the world was made. Wow, this would really be hard. And uh, God continues, Job, you challenged Almighty God. Will you give up now or will you answer? Again, did Job challenge God? God challenged Satan. Look, there's a perfect and upright man down there. And Job, boy, he's overwhelmed. And he says, I spoke foolishly, Lord. What can I answer? I will not try to say anything else. I've already said more than I should. All right? And I think the friends at this point must have been maybe exchanging high fives. I don't know, but they're, they're seeming to be right. But God goes on. Then out of the storm, the Lord spoke to Job once again. Now stand up straight and answer my questions. Are you trying to prove that I am unjust to put me in the wrong and yourself in the right? Are you as strong as I am? Can your voice thunder as loud as mine? If so, stand up in your honor and pride. Clothe yourself with majesty and glory. Look at those who are proud. Pour out your anger and humble them. Yes, look at them and bring them down. Crush the wicked where they stand. Bury them all in the ground. Bind them in the world of the dead. Then I will be the first to praise you and admit that you won the victory yourself. All right, now, what are the angels thinking at this point? Um, well, maybe, was, maybe God was wrong in declaring about Job that he's a perfect and upright man. I guess the friends are right in their picture. And Job, and, and there are different ways of, of translating this, but I, I really like many versions have it this way. Job says to God, hear and I will speak. I will question you, and you declare to me. But then Job collapses and says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now, I love Ellen White's interpretation of these words of Job. Uh, these words of Job, I repent in dust and ashes, is not nullifying all of the good things that Job just said about God. Ellen White compares these words of Job to Isaiah when he saw the glory of God and said, there is no hope for me. I am doomed because every word that passes my lips is sinful and I live among a people whose every word is sinful and yet with my own eyes I have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And Daniel, same thing, righteous, upright Daniel when he encountered the glory of God said this, when I heard his voice, I fell to the ground unconscious and lay there face downward. Then a hand took hold of me and raised me to my hands and knees. I was still trembling. And what about Paul? And he was taken to the third heaven and he says, I am less than the least of all God's people. And John in Revelation, when he sees the angel, when I saw him, I felt, or when he sees Jesus, I fell down at his feet like a dead man. I think this is what Job is experiencing here uh, in his words. So all of this is happening, and then we get this dramatic twist in the story. After the Lord had finished speaking to Job, he said to Eliphaz, I am angry with you and your two friends because you did not speak the truth about me the way my servant Job did. And I just imagine there is a collective gasp of amazement in the universe. Oh my goodness, this story is taking one twist after another. Now take seven bulls and seven rams to Job and offer them as a sacrifice for yourselves. Job will pray for you and I will answer his prayer and not disgrace you the way you deserve. You did not speak the truth about me as he did. And so Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar did what the Lord told them to do and the Lord answered 
Job's prayer. Okay, amazing. But Job is vindicated in the end. And ultimately, God is vindicated in this story. Now, I'm sorry to go over here, but I I have to tie in one last uh, point. Because we have to think. God, as he builds up this image and then has to shatter it, iconoclastic methods, I am not that way. Did Jesus ever use those methods? And yes, he did. Listen to the story of Jesus and the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15. But Jesus did not say a word to her. His disciples came and begged him, send her away. She is following us and making all this noise. Then Jesus replied. Now, don't read on. Here we have a woman in distress. All right. And she is coming to seek for help. And uh, wouldn't we expect her? The disciples are incredibly annoyed at this woman. Wouldn't we expect Jesus now to say, just like he did with the children, oh, let the children come to me. Um, Or to say to the disciples, look, I've come to help people of all races, uh, women, foreign, heathen, does not matter. But Jesus replies, I have been sent only to the lost sheep of the people of Israel. Uh, Painful words for this woman. But at this, the woman came and fell at his feet. Help me, sir, she said. Now, what are we told if we come to Jesus with the words, help me? Is he always there to help? Yes. But what does Jesus say to this woman? Help me, sir. Jesus answered, it isn't right to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. Now, imagine that the woman had given up at this point. And that's how the story ends. And we have this story of Jesus turning a woman away with the words, it isn't right to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. That would be a story I would have a hard time reconciling with um, with what I now believe about God. But it doesn't end, fortunately. <clears throat> and the woman, and Jesus certainly knew the heart of this woman, the woman says, that's true, sir, she answered, but even the dogs eat the leftovers that fall from their master's table So Jesus answered her, you are a woman of great faith. And because you're a woman of great faith, I am able to, in this story, totally destroy what my disciples believe about how we should help women and foreigners and what you will will be done for you. And at that very moment, her daughter was healed. So Jesus plays right along with the, uh, the, the bias that the disciples had. And they're thinking, yeah, Jesus is right with us on this. He's right with us. He's right with us. And then he smashes that false picture. And very quickly here, if I could read Ellen White's description of this story with the Canaanite woman in Desire of Ages. He wished to relieve the afflicted woman. Notice, first thing, he wanted to help her. And at the same time, to leave an example in his work of mercy toward one of a despised people for the benefit of his disciples when he should no longer be with them. So here he is. He wants to help the woman. He would have helped the woman right away. But to teach his disciples, he did it this way. He wished to lead them from their Jewish exclusiveness to be interested in working for others besides their own people. Jesus longed to unfold the deep mysteries of the truth which had been hid for ages, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs with the Jews. This truth the disciples were slow to learn. And the divine teacher, don't we see this in these stories? God is an excellent teacher, is he not? Making these points very strongly. The divine teacher gave them lesson upon lesson in rewarding the faith of the centurion and preaching to the gospel to the inhabitants of Sychar, he had already given evidence that he did not share the intolerance of the Jews. Now, Jesus brought his disciples in contact with a heathen. Again, who initiated this? Jesus brought his disciples to this woman, whom they regarded as having no reason above any of her people to expect favor from him. He would give an example of how such a one should be treated. The disciples had thought that he dispensed too freely the gifts of his grace. He would show that his love was not to be circumscribed to race or nation. So again, God, the iconoclast, destroying our false picture of God to bring us to the truth. Let's pray.
Dear Father, surely you are revealed to be an effective teacher, as we have just read. And as we dig deeper and deeper into the Bible, and as the layers of lies about you peel away, and we come closer to your heart of love, to your perfect character that was revealed by Jesus, may the Bible, may the words on these pages open up to us, that we understand that we become fully convinced as Job was fully convinced about the kind of person you are that absolutely nothing can shake us from our belief about your character. Amen.